any power when we started, and now we do. This has been the summer with the power problems, hasn't it? And I've, we're not the only place. I've talked to a few other churches, doctrinal churches, that have had the same kinds of odd things going on with power this summer as well. Before we get started, we need to make sure that we're in fellowship and that we're ready to learn God's Word, to concentrate and focus. We do that through confession of sin. If we confess our sin, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is a part of the privacy of the believer to make sure that we avail ourselves of the provision that God has given us. All issues in life for the believer are spiritual issues and the most important factor is that we are uh, make sure that our life is empowered by God the Holy Spirit. So let's begin with silent prayer and then we'll open class in prayer. Father, we thank you for the wonderful privilege we have to get into your word, to see what the Holy Spirit has to teach us this evening, what you have revealed to us and preserved down through these centuries is so important. Father, as we look at the doctrinal principles tonight related to adversity and stress, we pray that you would help us to make these a part of our lives, that we might handle the whatever adversities come into our lives to glorify you that we might grow to spiritual maturity. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to James chapter 1. James chapter 1, verse 5. James 1, 5. The subject in the opening introduction of James is testing. Initial command is to count it all joy whenever we encounter various trials. I think that that is the point of the Holy Epistle and everything else that we're going to study in James is to help us understand exactly how we are to get to the point where we can count it all joy when we encounter various trials. The Apostle Paul said that he had been in situations where he abounded, in situations where he suffered loss, And that he had learned by the time he wrote the epistle to the Philippians, he was um, uh, an advanced believer in maturity. And by then he had learned that in whatsoever condition he found himself to have joy. And then he concludes by saying, I can do all things. And what he means by that is live in any situation, adversity or prosperity. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So James is telling us how to do the same kind of thing. Verses 2 through 4 focused on the principle of counting it all joy when we encounter various trials because we know a certain doctrinal principle and that is that the testing of our faith, the test, that is the testing of the doctrine in our soul produces endurance and the result of endurance is maturity. That's the growth process. You can't get to spiritual maturity any other way. It's not by emotion. It's not by experience. It's by learning doctrine. It's by applying doctrine day in and day out uh, in the good times as well as the bad times. Uh, the tests, every situation in life to one degree or another provides a test, an opportunity for us, us to apply uh, doctrine to that circumstance or that situation. But sometimes we don't always know the doctrine that applies. We may be in a situation where we are confused and so we pray. This is verse 5 where we find ourselves 
now, but if any of you lacks wisdom, that is, the knowledge of doctrine pertinent to the situation, the test that you find yourself in, let him ask of God. Verse 5 focuses on the character of God in terms of grace orientation that God gives to all men generously and without reproach. God does not give. He does not put conditions on His giving. God gives to all men generously and without reproach. But there is one condition, and that's in verse 6. Let Him ask by means of faith. Prayer, in order to have efficacy, must be on the basis of faith alone. And it must be on the basis of a faith that is not distracted by doubts. That's what we will get into this evening. We began a study then of prayer. We talked about the what the Bible teaches with respect to prayer. And then we began to discuss the faith rest drill. The phrase is in pisti, by means of faith in, plus the instrumental dative, uh, or the dative of means, by means of faith. That's how we pray. And there are three stages to the faith rest drill. Stage number one is mixing promises with faith. Mixing promises of God with faith. That presupposes that we know what God's promises are, and that means we need to take time to read through the Bible on a regular basis so that we are aware of the incredible promises that God has given to us so that we can grow uh, by them. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, Peter says, "...seeing that His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness, through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence, for by these, that is, His glory and excellence, His character, His essence, He has granted to us, that is, believers in the church age, His precious and magnificent promises, in order that by them you might become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. So knowing God's promises is vital to spiritual growth and spiritual maturity. You must take time to learn. You can't apply what you don't know, and you don't know what you don't take the time and the discipline and the energy to study and to learn for yourself. There are a variety of promises in Scripture that we have gone over, and we don't have time this evening to review that material, so you can uh, get the tape if you need to. The second stage, where we find ourselves, where we found ourselves the last time, is using doctrinal rationales. Doctrinal rationales. There are uh, so far we have covered four points under doctrinal rationales. The first is a definition. A rationale is an underlying reason, justification, or explanation. It's an underlying reason, justification, or explanation. And what you do at this is you focus on the underlying doctrinal reasons and principles, uh, the ones, the, the, these principles that undergird the promise, so that you focus on various aspects of, uh, uh, of doctrine that is encapsulated within that promise. And that means, secondly, <coughs> excuse me, the use of doctrinal rationales depends on having epinosis doctrine in your soul and a maturing faith that you are in fellowship and under the uh, filling of the Holy Spirit. Third point, we we'll begin to discuss various different rationales. Uh, 
The third point is the essence of God rationale. The essence of God rationale, you focus on the nature and character of God. Certain aspects of His essence. You might, for example, look at His sovereignty and realize that God is the absolute authority in the universe. And therefore, God is in complete control of every circumstance in our life. No situation can ever come into our life that is a surprise to God or outside of His power or control. You might focus on uh, God's omniscience which means that God knows everything that is, will ever happen in human history. He knows all the, uh, everything that is knowable. He knows both actual and possible uh, past, present, and future events. Therefore, when you come into some situation, some adversity, we know that for uh, billions of years God has been completely aware of that situation, that uh, adversity, and that He has made a provision for it. We know, uh, for example, that God is absolute truth. So that what he says in his word he will do and we can rely upon his promises and that he will do exactly what he said he will do. So those are just some examples of using the essence of God rationale. Point number four was the plan of God rationale. The plan of God rationale focuses on the fact that God has a plan and a purpose for human history and God has a plan and a purpose for your life as a believer. No matter what you have done, no matter how much it may shock you, no matter how much guilt you may feel or experience, no matter how uh, much people may continue to berate you because of some failure in your life, if you are still alive afterwards, then God still has a plan for your life on planet Earth. And the provision of 1 John 1, 9, uh, confession and recovery is still yours to apply in your life. And you're to follow that and keep moving in spiritual life and you can recover and you can grow uh, to spiritual maturity. So God does have a plan for your life. Romans 8.35 says, Who shall separate us from the love of God, love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Romans 8.35 and Romans 8.37 says, But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us. And that focuses on the essence of God or the plan of God that we will conquer through Him. The fifth point where we stopped last time is the a fortiori rationale. This is a Latin phrase, two words, the prefix or preposition a and the noun fortiori. Literally what this means in the Latin is from a stronger reason. In other words, in, in logic, you start off and you establish a strong reason a major premise, a principle. And then you argue that if God can do X, whatever that may be, and what you are counting on Him to do is Y, and Y is much easier to do than X, then if God has the power to do X, then a fortiori, or by strength, or from a stronger reason, you know that God can do Y. This is very simple. We know that, um, I guess, the, one of the simplest ways is if God has solved the greatest problem in your, that you will ever face, which is the problem of sin, if God has solved the greatest problem you will ever face, then whatever problem you face on a day-to-day basis, God can also solve. If God can solve the greatest problem, He can solve any little problem. According to um, Romans 8, 31 and 32, we have a classic example in the Scriptures of Paul's use of an a fortiori rationale. Turn with me to Romans 8, 31 and 32, and you'll see how this works. 
The scriptures are full of all of these kinds of rationales. The Psalms are full of them. David used them, especially the essence of God rationale, over and over again. Romans 8, 31 and 32. Paul was a master of it. His education, he was schooled in all the various forms of Greek thought, including logic. And he is very logical and systematic in the way he lays out his presentation of doctrine. And he... um, and today we find that people want to reject logic, that you don't need logic. In fact, logic won't get you anywhere. And yet the Scriptures are fundamentally logical in their presentation of God and what He has done for us. Okay, Romans 8.31 says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He's asking a rhetorical question. And then he explains the principle. He, that is God the Father who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, that is, the substitutionary work of Jesus Christ on the cross, how will He not also with Him freely give us all things? In other words, if God did so much for us at the cross in providing everything we would ever need through the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ and providing salvation for us, if He was willing to send His unique Son to the cross, if He was willing to work through human history so the second person of the Trinity could become incarnate and come to the earth and and, uh, fulfill His life on the earth for approximately 33 years and go to the cross and die as our substitute, that if God would do that much for us, that's the stronger reason. If God would do all of that for us, then it stands to reason that God will also give us all things. He will provide everything else for us. If He did that much, He will provide everything else. So the argument is, if God does X, which is a very great thing, and demanded a tremendous amount on His part, then God will do something, is able to do something much less. Why? Which is to solve the problem or situation that you face in life. Another promise that fits into this category is Isaiah 40.31. Those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. This is the principle in the faith rest life of patience. Waiting on the Lord. Doing exactly what God has said to do in His Word. And then waiting. God's timing is not always our timing. And sometimes we're in a hurry to see things happen. And spiritual growth, spiritual maturity takes time just like anything else in life. You know, for those of us who are getting a little older, we look back and think how mature we thought we were when we were a little bit younger and realize that, that it's only time that, that uh, can bring about a lot in maturity. It takes time to go through situations and to uh, learn to wait upon the Lord. Stage, so that covers stage two, which is doctrinal rationales. And stage three in the faith rest drill is coming to doctrinal conclusions. After you use the doctrinal rationale and you realize that if God solved the greatest problem I will ever face, then God can solve this problem, then what's the conclusion? The conclusion is that I'm going to relax and wait on God to solve the problem. That's what I mean by reaching doctrinal conclusions. Once you use the rationale and you focus on who God is or you focus on His plan or you focus on what He has done in human history, 
then you can reach certain conclusions in relationship to your own life. When we reach those conclusions, that's when our emotions begin to stabilize. That's when we begin to relax in the situation. That's how we can avoid um, punching the panic button and uh, letting emotion take over and rule our decision-making process in the midst of the adversity. Faith rest drill is fundamental to everything else in the spiritual life. Romans 10.17 says, Faith comes from hearing. That means it's not faith in faith, but it's based on content. It's based on learning doctrinal principles. Faith comes by, from hearing and hearing by the Word of Christ. It is not just little moral pithy sayings, but it's focusing on the inerrant and infallible Word of God. So the faith rest drill includes three stages, mixing our promises with faith, using doctrinal rationales, and reaching doctrinal conclusions. Now, as we have gone through this study, we're looking at building a fortress. The psalmist says over and over again about how the Lord is His fortress, His strength, His shield, His bulwark. We build a fortress around our soul through the use of the ten stress busters or problem-solving devices. Now, this is one way to graphically reveal this as a wall around our soul. There's a weakness in this sort of a diagram, and that is that it makes it look rather linear. That first you learn confession. After you get that down, then you go to the next step, which is the filling of the Holy Spirit. After you get that down, then you have to master faith rest drill in all three stages. First you have to learn promises, then you have to learn doctrinal rationales and doctrinal conclusions. So I have to master the faith rest drill before I can move on to doctrinal orientation. That's a misrepresentation. The spiritual life is very dynamic. We learn at different stages in different ways. This just gives you a logical relationship between the, the ten stress busters. I'm working on developing this right now. I've been thinking about this for two or three weeks. And in, in reality, it's more like this. If I can go back to uh, some old principles of drawing. You've got like, the fortress is more like a cube. See if I can get this down here. The first floor that is erected on this is the filling of the Holy Spirit. So we draw in one floor, we drew our base, and then we come in and we draw one floor above that. Now over here on this side, we're going to put a doorway. This doorway is confession, 1 John 1.9. This is the doorway into the soul fort. Here we'll put a circle. Within it, five circles for the mentality, emotion, volition, and conscience, four circles. Self-consciousness. Self-consciousness, mentality, volition, emotion, and conscience. This is the soul. This is the real you, the invisible you. And this is going to be fortified. This is what is assaulted when you go through various uh, trials, tests, whether they're adversity or prosperity. You go through these situations and they put pressure on you. 
Adversity and prosperity are outside pressure on the soul. They are inevitable in life. We will go through all kinds of adversities and we will have various kinds of prosperity that can distract us from the importance of doctrine. The way to protect our soul from converting the outside pressure of adversity and prosperity into the inside pressure of stress in the soul is to build this soul fortress. We enter that fortress through the use of 1 John 1.9, Confession of Sin. The result of that is immediately the filling of the Holy Spirit. Now we continue to build on this. Let me draw this a little higher. We'll pull this wall up higher. trying to figure out how to draw this on my computer so we can have some nice colors and make it look a little better. But it comes out something like this. Now, as we learn, we're under the filling of the Holy Spirit and we learn a promise. We learn something like, um, well, the one we just, we just uh, used, that, that uh, uh, if God sent His Son to die on the cross, how shall He not with Him also freely give us all things? So we learn something about grace. So this is a little bit about, um, we learn the doctrine of grace, so we have, first of all, doctrinal orientation. And as we learn that doctrine, we come over here and we put another block in place, which is part of grace orientation. Because we've learned these two principles, something related to doctrinal orientation and something related to grace orientation, then the next time we come to Bible class, we learn something about impersonal love or unconditional love. So, because that's based upon grace orientation, realizing that I don't have to do anything to earn or deserve God's love, then in the same way I am to love other people. So impersonal love for all mankind is then based upon some manner of grace orientation. So we put this little block in here. And as we learn doctrines, we put them in. Just like these walls we see in the countryside everywhere, you put them in one block at a time. And the result is you get this this structure being built that is your own soul fortress. And, and they're made up of the different problem-solving devices. You have, the faith, uh, you have a doctrinal orientation and grace orientation, um, a, a personal sense of your eternal destiny, uh, impersonal love for all mankind, personal love for God, uh, inner happiness, occupation with Christ. But the mortar that flows between and puts each one of these doctrines in place is the faith rest drill. Each rock in that fortress represents a different stress buster. And you learn one over here, and you learn something about personal love for God. Then you put in another one over here, and it's occupation with Christ. And so there's a dynamic aspect to this growth. You don't learn everything about one doctrine at one time. As you come to Bible class, you learn a doctrine, you put it into practice, and you begin to uh, construct this fortification around your soul. And that which holds it all together is the faith rest drill. So that's why it's so important to master that as a basic. The foundation is the filling of the Holy Spirit. And as soon as you commit a sin and you convert that adversity or prosperity to stress in the soul, then you're outside the fortress in carnality. When you're outside the fortress in carnality, uh, the Scripture says you're grieving and quenching the Holy Spirit. The only way to recover... 1 John 1, 9, go back through that doorway into your fortress where your soul will be protected from the outside pressure of stress in the soul.
So one of the problems that we want to look at then is how the faith rest drill relates in a sense to the stress busters. And I want to look at the example of the faith rest drill and fear. So we want to have five principles related to fear. Point number one, the more things in life that you surrender to fear, the more things you will fear and worry about in life. The more things that you surrender to fear, the more things you will fear and worry about in life. Now, some people are always plagued by fear and worry. These are some of the worst mental attitude sins. Fear, worry, anxiety um, are among some of the worst. They're not quite as bad, I don't think, as bitterness, but they're still destructive to the soul. The more things that you start worrying about, the more things you will worry about. Worry is very kin to fear. The more aspects of your life that you surrender to fear, the more things you will fear and worry about in life. Point number two, the extent to which you surrender to fear, worry, and anxiety, the greater your capacity for fear, worry, and anxiety. So the more you surrender to fear, the greater your capacity for fear will become. Point number one, the more aspects of life that you surrender to fear, the more things you will fear. Point number two, the extent to which you, the more things you surrender to fear, the greater your capacity for fear. Point number three, the greater your capacity for fear, the more you will increase the power of fear or worry or anxiety in your life. It begins to domino. It begins to Uh, like a snowball or an avalanche going downhill, it begins to add greater and greater momentum and pick up greater and greater power. So the greater your capacity for fear, the more you increase the power of fear in your life to the point that you become began to be crippled by fear and worry and anxiety. Point number four, the more the power of fear increases in your life, the more stress builds in your soul. The more the more the, uh, the more the power of fear increases in your life, the more stress builds in your soul. And point five, this stress is a companion to the emotional and arrogance complex of sins, the lust pattern of the sin nature, uh, reversionism, Christian moral and immoral degeneracy. The result of this is that you will become a neurotic and a psychotic or a psychotic believer. As you continue to cave into sin, as you continue to, when adversity and prosperity come along, instead of responding by staying over here in your soul fortress, you go out here in carnality and you give yourself over to fear, worry, anxiety. The result is that this begins to grow and dominate in your soul. And as we will see in the coming verse, this puts so much stress in your soul that it begins to fragment and come apart. And the result is that you begin to become neurotic and psychotic and you can, in fact, develop all kinds of extreme psychological maladies that are very um, that most people might even associate with demon possession. But the fact is, it's just carnality in your soul taking you to its logical conclusion. When faced, faced with these kinds of situations, And with the uh, fear, worry, and anxiety in our lives, what we need to do is focus on the doctrines of Scripture. Doctrines like uh, Psalm 56, 3 and 4, When I am afraid, I will put my trust in Thee. In God, whose word I praise, in God I have put my trust. 
I shall not be afraid. David went through some incredible situations where he was persecuted by the king. He was chased by every uh, military and police agency that Saul could muster in order to capture, capture David. He um, was put in various uh, military situations where his life was threatened. But he says, he concludes, his doctrinal conclusion is, When I am afraid, I will put my trust in thee. Isaiah 41.10 Do not fear, for I, am the, I the Lord, am with you. Uh, do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you, surely I will help you, surely I will uphold you with the right hand of my righteousness. 2 Timothy 1.7 For God has not given us a, an attitude of timidity or cowardice, but of power and love and sound judgment. This is the basis for having an effective prayer life in the midst of adversity, is that we pray by means of faith, utilizing the faith rest drill. Now, if we get, go turn back with me to James 1, and we will see the opposite to faith. We will see that the writer of James sees that you, shows that you're in one position or another. You are either operating on the basis of faith, the faith rest drill, over here, or you're not. If you're not operating on the basis of the faith rest drill, then the other category is that you are doubting. You are uncertain. You are not sure that God will answer your prayer, that God is the solution to your problems. You're trying to do like, perhaps like a lot of people. You're going to use some Christianity. You're going to use some doctrine over here. But then you're going to go over here and you're going to try to use some uh, psychological technique, some psychobabble, in order to try to... Uh, solve your problem rather than sticking with the Scripture 100%. And the result is that you've got two competing systems for problem solving. No matter what it may be, you've got two competing systems to solve your problems. And so you go back and forth and back and forth and the result is that you are unstable and that God says right here that you will not uh, have your prayers answered. Verse 6 says, but let him, that's the person who lacks wisdom, let him ask by means of faith without any doubting. This is the present middle participle from diacrino, which means to evaluate or to consider, but it can also mean to doubt. When it's in the middle voice, it means to judge oneself or to be at odds with oneself, fighting oneself, where there's this conflict going on inside. Hence, to hence it came to mean to hesitate, to be undecided, or to doubt. But let him ask by means of faith, without any hesitation, without any indecision, or doubting. Why? We have in the Greek, the particle gar, which always, G-A-R, which always introduces an explanation. In this case, you could paraphrase it by saying, let him ask in faith without any doubting because, this is the principle, the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. And if you've seen any of the news footage the last couple of days of the, of the winds and the surf down in North Carolina, that's the imagery that James is using here. Remember, James um, grew up as did our Lord in Galilee, so he had many times when he was down 
probably near the Sea of Galilee and saw the terrific storms that would come up there. So he uses this image that the person who doubts, the person who is not operating on divine viewpoint over here by means of faith, but is relying upon human viewpoint systems of problem solving over here, is constantly going back and forth. He's tossed and turned. He is unstable. He will not have his uh, prayers answered. He is inconsistent. And he, his spiritual life is that of the person that is constantly going back and forth. First they're outside the fortress, then they're inside the fortress. Then they're outside, then they're inside. And that's typical of especially a lot of young believers. But if you're not a brand new believer and you know some doctrine and that characterizes your life, then you're on the road to spiritual self-destruction. When you confess your sins, you get back in the fortress and that puts you in a position to grow and to stay there. But what happens is as soon as people get back in there, then instead of trusting the Bible alone for the solution to their problems, they immediately try to rely on some psychological gimmick or technique, whatever the latest thing is. I'm okay, you're okay. You know what the Bible says. I'm not okay and neither are you. So... We always have to remember that the Scripture has a very unique and very profound perspective on everything in life, and it is contrary to uh, most human all human systems that try to solve problems. They may have some establishment truth in them that sound good and look good to a certain degree, because to operate within the realm of reality, you always have to have a certain amount of truth. Always remember this: it's not the glass of water that's going to hurt you. It's that one drop of cyanide. You can have 99% truth and 1% error and it will destroy your spiritual life. We have to stick with the Scripture alone 100%. So the contrast is between the person who asks in faith, by means of faith relying solely and exclusively upon God for the solution to their problems, and the person who doubts, the person who's not sure, the person who is... um, trying to solve his problems either with their own agenda because they're not really sure they want to go all the way with with what the Lord has described in Scripture or they're trying to use some human viewpoint system such as modern psychology, whether it's Freudian psychology or Jungian psychology or Maslowian psychology or whatever school of thought they get into. Now as we're looking at this, we have to go back, remind ourselves of a couple of principles related to adversity and stress. Point number one, adversity is what circumstances do to us. Stress is what we do to ourselves. Stress is the result of your volition. That's point two. Adversity is inevitable. Stress is optional. Point number three, adversity is the outside pressure of negative circumstances. Adversity is the outside pressure of negative circumstances. Prosperity is the outside pressure of positive circumstances. Fourth, stress is the inside pressure resulting from a failure to use the problem-solving devices or stress busters that God has provided in His Word. These ten stress busters that we have here, confession, filling of the Holy Spirit, faith rest drill, doctrinal orientation, grace orientation, personal sense of eternal destiny, personal love for God the Father, impersonal love for all mankind, inner happiness and occupation with Christ 
are extrapolated from the Scriptures. These are techniques. We can see them over and over again in the characters of Scripture and see how they use these different uh, techniques in order to solve the problems in their life. Stress is the result, is the inside pressure in the soul resulting from a failure to use the ten stress busters and is equivalent to sin nature control of the soul because you're going to rely on your own energy and effort and thinking to solve the problem rather than exclusively on God's solution. Point number five. Unchecked, stress destroys concentration and the ability to think clearly. Point number five. Unchecked, stress destroys concentration and the ability to think clearly. As adversity mounts up and is converted to stress in the soul, the ability to think rationally and objectively quickly erodes until the decision-making process operates on emotional whims at best and is paralyzed at worst. If you've ever seen somebody who's gone through one tragedy after another where it just seems as if they receive uh, one body blow after another for a long period of time and they don't have any doctrine, they just seem sort of dazed and numb and they don't know how to make decisions. You ask them to, to go to the store and make a simple decision between two different brands of ice cream, and they can't do it. They just stand there and look because they've been buffeted so much that they, and they haven't been able to, to handle the situation with doctrine that they can't make good, clear decisions. They can't evaluate um, life situations anymore, and they're just sort of numb. I've seen a number of people over the years who get to this point in their life and they, they and the interesting thing is they always talk about relying on scripture and using scripture and they have all the, the, the right language. They have a lot of what I call God talk, but there's no scriptural application. They haven't been solving those problems in life through doctrine. Now they've convinced themselves that they have because they've been going to church or they've been reading whatever the latest popular book is at the Christian bookstore on problem solving that's usually a mix of uh, psychology and a, with a little bit of doctrine thrown in just to make it look like it's Christian. And then they conclude that doctrine doesn't work. Whenever you hear somebody say doctrine doesn't work, 99.9% of the time they've gone through this scenario. They've gone through a situation in their life when they've been tr- they're, they're the unstable man here in verse 8. They've been trying to solve it with a blend of doctrine and human viewpoint. And they've convinced themselves that they've been uh, consistent with Scripture and trying to apply it. And really, if the truth were known, they probably have a tremendous amount of gnosis in their soul and very little epinosis. As a result of converting the stress into the soul, we see that unchecked stress destroys concentration and the ability to think clearly and destroys the decision-making process so you become numbed and paralyzed. Point number six. Doctrine assimilated into the mentality of your soul as epinosis doctrine maintains the normal, cohesive, integrated, and unified soul. Let me say that again for those of you who are trying to get all that down in your notes. Doctrine assimilated into the mentality of your soul what I mean by epinosis doctrine, not just gnosis doctrine. Gnosis is the Greek word for knowledge or what I call academic knowledge. Under the filling of the Holy Spirit, 
when you believe the doctrine that you're taught, the Gnosis doctrine, then the Holy Spirit converts that into epinosis in your soul. And it becomes usable doctrine that is stored there for you to apply when you get into different uh, test situations. Doctrine assimilated into the mentality of your soul maintains the normal, cohesive, integrated, and unified soul. There's no fragmentation. It's one unified soul. Everyone is born with a unified soul. When you were born, you had a cohesive, integrated, and unified soul. Everyone is born sane. No one is born insane. Insanity, emotional instability, are the result of what you do and the choices that you make in life. No one is born that way. Emotional instability and insanity are the results of the choices you make in responding to outside adversities. The tragic thing with a lot of people is that when they are infants or children, because they're not believers, they don't know any doctrine, the only solutions offered to them, available to them, are human viewpoint solutions. Now, some human viewpoint solutions are obviously better than other human viewpoint solutions. But in the midst of extremely tragic circumstances, sometimes these children will begin to respond to these outside pressures in very inappropriate ways, and the result is soul fragmentation. And it creates a tremendous amount of damage in their soul that they have to deal with later, especially if they become a believer in their teenage years or as an adult, then they, there's a tremendous amount that they have to do, but God can do it. God solved the greatest problem at the cross, and He can solve any other problem. Only God and Bible doctrine can restore a soul that has been fragmented. And I think personally that this is the root of what they now call identity. Uh, it used to be, uh, I can't keep up with all the latest psychobabble, multiple personality syndrome, and now they have uh, identity dissociative disorder. I think that's what they call it now, identity dissociative disorder. And it's very interesting. In fact, uh, there was a news show last week on that subject, and it seemed to me that as I watched it, that what finally it took a very famous person who was the basis for the movie Three Faces of Eve, and they, uh, when the doctor dealt with her, what had solutions to her multiple personality problem is that he wouldn't let her bail out to solve problems. Whenever life got a little hard to handle, she would become a different personality. And the doctor wouldn't let her do that. It took years, but he forced her, you've got to make a volitional decision, which shows that all this fragmentation is merely the result of years and years of, of negative volition and making bad decisions in, in problem solving. And the only result is to make good decisions uh, from a position of Bible doctrine, a position of strength. Notice what Psalm 23, 1 through 3 says. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Principle. Because the Lord is our shepherd, there's nothing that you or I lack as believers. We don't need anything. God has already provided us with everything. The root of modern psychology is that people are, are need-oriented. All the approaches to psychology function on this basis of need, that you've got to have certain needs met before you can have soul health. 
what the scripture says is that God has met all of our needs at the cross. We don't want for anything. Psalm 23, 2. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. In the metaphor of a shepherd and the sheep, the green pastures and the waters are the source of nutrition. Nutrients, food, water. God provides the nutrition we need spiritually to grow through Bible doctrine. We're commanded as a newborn babe to desire the milk of the Word. And then Psalm 23.3 He restores my soul. This is the same word that's used in 1 Kings 13.6 of God healing a withered hand. God restores our soul. The only solution is the divine solution. Human solutions do not work. So that brings us to point seven. A reminder. Our lives are the results of the decisions we make. Who you are now is the result of all the decisions you made from the time you were about six months old. You began making decisions. Now, you may not have been fully conscious of the fact that you were making these decisions. You may not have been as aware of all the ramifications and consequences that might might come your way as a result of those decisions. But everything that you become later in life is a result of those decisions. And some of those decisions we make when we're quite young have incredible, enormous consequences. Think about people, kids today, eight, nine years old, getting involved in drugs and sex and all kinds of of activities that, that they shouldn't even be aware of at that age, and yet they're getting involved with them. What are the what impact will that have on them as an adult when they have to deal with those habits and those thought patterns? It's going it's horrendous to try to back up once you've ingrained those things that type of thinking into your soul. But God's word is more than sufficient to solve any of those problems. It just makes it a little more difficult. You think of a person who is an alcoholic who spent years crawling inside of a bottle every time he has a problem to face. Then all of a sudden he's going to get positive to doctrine and he is going to begin to apply doctrine. Well, it's going to take a lot more work and effort to deal with that problem than someone who doesn't have that problem. But it's just a matter of moment by moment using the faith rest drill and applying doctrine. A little more concentration and a When we make good decisions based on the divine viewpoint, our soul is protected from stress. We move inside the fortress. We grow spiritually and we glorify God in the angelic conflict. Point number eight. When we make bad decisions based on human viewpoint, and always remember the deceptive thing about human viewpoint is it sounds so good. We go, yeah, that sounds right. Just good common sense, isn't it? In many cases, that's what it is in its human viewpoint. When we make bad decisions based on human viewpoint in our soul, the sin nature dominates. We convert the outside pressure of adversity into the inside pressure of stress in the soul. We regress spiritually and we move toward being a failure in the Christian life. Bad decisions are based on human viewpoint. Good decisions are based on divine viewpoint. That's the option. Divine viewpoint is presented, represented by the doctrines of Scripture. Point number nine. Continued stress destroys cognitive ability and can impair physical function. Continued stress destroys cognitive function and can impair physical functions.
six subpoints. Subpoint one: there's a definite relationship between stress and cognition. There's a definite relationship between stress and the ability to think clearly. Subpoint two: stress makes you forgetful and impairs your memory. Stress makes you forgetful and impairs your memory. Subpoint three: Stress hinders your ability to learn. You won't be able to come to Bible class and concentrate as easily. D. Stress affects your perception of reality. You're unable to balance things in your thinking clearly. To balance things correctly. Point number five. When stress is removed... Cognitive ability can be restored. When that stress is removed, cognitive ability can be restored. And subpoint six, if a person remains in a stress situation too long, all of his cognitive ability is destroyed and he enters into a psychotic state. If a person remains in a stress situation too long, constantly converting that adversity to stress, His cognitive ability is destroyed and he enters into a psychotic state. Now point number 10 is a very important point that I want you to understand. Under continuous stress, the sin nature further fragments the soul. What happens is, Without the soul fortress to protect, as adversity mounts and puts pressure on the soul, cracks start to appear. This is the same kind of thing that happens in metallurgy when they take uh, steel, they take some metal structure, and they put it under pressure, a stress test, to see if cracks will appear, to see if it can withstand the, the outside pressure. What happens to the unprotected soul with adversity coming on it, One after another, cracks begin to appear and the soul begins to fragment. As a result of soul fragmentation, there are consequences in the physical realm. There are biochemical reactions. Various chemicals in the body are produced as you go under stress. As a result, you get into a vicious cycle. These chemicals that are produced in turn, create further mental problems. Those mental problems, in turn, create further biochemical imbalance. So what's the solution? The solution is twofold. Number one, sometimes it's necessary for people to go under medication. They need to take lithium or they need to take any variety of drugs that the medical community is aware of. But this is merely a stopgap measure. This is merely designed to, so that this person can achieve a level of functionality in life so that they can begin to move in a direction of making positive spiritual decisions and apply doctrine in their life. It's always important to maintain that medication. And then as you grow spiritually and you are strengthened in your spiritual life, then you can begin to work off of the medication slowly. 
But you need to get off of the medication. That's, the medication is designed to stabilize you and to be your problem solver for the rest of your life. Some people address their medication that way. Boy, I've got to take my uh, lithium or, or whatever it is they're taking uh, to solve their problem. And they're going to stay there for the rest of their life. And they're just kind of go through life a little numb and a little high and, and never really face adversity. But the goal, the medication is simply to stabilize you after years of, of problems and converting adversity into stress. And then you work your way out of it through spiritual solutions. Remember, the divine solution is the only solution. The human solution is no solution. The human solution will never fully satisfy and fully resolve the underlying issues which are always spiritual in nature. So it's important for some people, if they've gone through certain situations in life or so deteriorated in their soul, to stabilize through the use of medication and then get into Bible class time and time again and start using doctrine, start applying doctrine, and move forward with spiritual growth with the goal of eventually getting off of that medication and being able to live life in stability. This is what we see in uh, the contrast in verse 8, that the person that does not uh, ask in faith uh, will not have his prayers answered at all. He will not receive anything from the Lord because he is double-minded, unstable in all his ways. And the Greek word here is disukos. Transliterated, that's D-I-P-S-U-C-H-O-S. Now this word here, sukos, comes from suke, which is the word for soul, and this comes from the word for two. So it literally means to be two-souled. And that's where we get the understanding of soul fragmentation. That this person's life begins to fragment and fall apart And he will not have his prayers answered until he returns to seeking God by means of faith alone and not trying to blend human viewpoint with the divine viewpoint in solving his problems. So we'll start there in verse 7 next Wednesday night with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for the privilege that we have to look at these things in your word. You have given us so much and there's... That, and you have provided for every situation that we will ever face in our life. We know, Father, that all we need to do is learn your word and apply it, and yet we constantly struggle with our sin nature, and we struggle with outside pressures, uh, outside influences that want to tell us that, yes, we can indeed solve our problems apart from you. But we know that the human solution is no solution. So we pray that as we go through life in the coming days that, We will face various tests of various magnitude. We pray that we can apply the doctrine that we have learned, that we may grow and pursue spiritual maturity. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.